Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in History. I'm Mark Clovis, your host for the channel. Today, we're talking with Susanna Forrest about her new book, The Age of the Horse, An Equine Journey Through Human History. Susanna, welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm delighted to be with you. We're delighted to have you. I wonder if you could start us off by telling us something about yourself. Um, I'm a British writer. I live in Berlin. Um, I've been here for the last 11 years, and Um, I've been working, I've produced two books about horses and history, but they also sort of bring in ideas of what's going on now and sometimes a little bit of memoir or travel. And sometimes I also convert parts of them into sort of academic pieces. Um, But I love to research and I love to write as well. So I try and do something that brings these things together. What led you to write this particular book, which is a very broad-ranging overview of of the history of the horse in human society? Well, I basically, the first book that I wrote, I was horse-mad when I was a little girl, like a lot of women. And the first book I wrote was called If Wishes Were Horses, and it was about, it was a kind of cultural history of horse-crazy girls and the way people have tried to sort of pathologize them, you know, work out the, the roots of this um problem that that girls seem to have and I had a break from horses before doing the book and I just discovered so many stories that were so interesting when I was working on it that it was just naturally completely natural to to go on to the next book Um, and it's based on really striking contemporary stories that I found and then sort of trying to find the history behind those things and finding echoes that come up again and again in history. That's one of the things that comes across from the very first page in your book, which is just how far back in history we can trace the humanity's uh, interrelationship with horses. So I was wondering if you could explain what it was you discovered in terms of that intertwining and how that shaped both the development of uh, humanity and the evolution and domestication of the horses. Well, I think if I'd written the book um, and sort of cased it according to how humans have interacted with horses, then I think like about 95% of it would have been about humans eating horses. Uh, So (laughs) that was largely what we did with horses. We ate them, we painted them. um, We presumably used what was left for for tools and um, clothing. Um, and then basically about 5,500 years ago, this is where the current research thinks it is, um, the horse seems to have been domesticated in Kazakhstan. Uh, it could have been somewhere else earlier, but this is what we know. Um, they were milking horses. These are people who are now called the, the botai. Um, they were eating them, and they were using every last part of them um, to build houses um, as, as tools and as sort of leather and harnesses and grips. 
And um, pretty much there's just such incredible research going on now with horse genes and understanding the genetics of domestication that we can see quite soon the, the horses begin to change over the next few thousand years before they turn up in the, in the Middle East and really start to expand across Europe and Asia. Um, they get sort of stronger, they get longer legged, um, they produce more milk, <coughs> surprisingly, because that was also what we were using them for. And uh, they start, I think, possibly, I think there's some estimates that they sort of changed mentally somewhat, or maybe that the particular wild horses that we domesticated were better set up for doing that. And they also sort of, what surprised me is that they they kind of come out in all kinds of glorious new colors, um, which I hadn't realized was part of the domestication process. So you get spotted horses on and um, uh, sort of exotic pintos and sort of cloudy colored horses and all kinds of things. But it's about the Bronze Age and the Iron Age. They come together almost with metal and with this sort of increasingly centralized society in the Middle East as well. And they really start to make a difference in terms of politics and, and war, I think. Right. Um, but really, I think they're just, they're just used in so many ways that it's quite, it's quite difficult to sort of um, sum up the impact they've had because we really do use them from everything from, like I said, from making buttons to, you know, sort of symbols of, of uh, royal power. And so it's, it's quite difficult to, to hone it down. Um, and I like how you break it down in the book, in your separate chapters. But what, one of the most uh, fascinating uh, parts of the book was what you describe as the quest to find truly wild horses still surviving because we oftentimes in America look at Mustangs and we think of them as wild horses. And yet, as you explained, those are actually domesticated uh, uh, variations that have you know, escaped out in the wild and, and, and continued on. The truly wild horses who have never really come from these domesticated lines are, are very, are, are, are in a sense, uh, non-existent nowadays. Yeah, I mean, it's actually quite a shock to realize horses actually went extinct in the wild in the 1960s, probably. Um, so we do still have some of these wild horses, but we only have them because um, Europeans went uh pretty aggressively into the steppe at the end of the 19th century and early 20th century and captured you know, 50 or so foals at a time from these wild horses, which was probably disastrous for the actual wild population. Um, but, and they then sort of kept them in zoos and um, safari parks and so on. And now there's, they had a difficulty breeding them because a lot of them were actually related to each other because they got them from the same herds. Um, and then they were sort of nearly wiped out by the Second World War and things were complicated by the Cold War. And now we have about 2,000 of these real wild horses left and they're all descended from 13 horses now, which is sort of post-World War II. Uh, so they're kind of, they're quite miraculous. They're called uh, either the Mongolian name, which I can't pronounce properly, is Tahi, um, which I think means spirit horse. And they're better known in the West as Shavalsky horses um, after a Polish-Russian explorer who was 
given, actually, he didn't actually see a live horse, but in the 19th century, he was journeying across the steppe into deeper Central Asia, and he was given um, a skin and a skull, I think, of one of these horses, and for that, the, the whole type was named after him. But they're pretty extraordinary. They look exactly like the horses you see on cave walls in Lascaux. Um, and they're genetically different to horses. They have a domestic horses. They have a different number of chromosomes. Um, and I kind of got interested in their story and how their story comes together with the way people in the West in, invented this idea of a wild horse. Um, you look at early accounts of wild horses and they're just kind of like something you eat or something that gets in the way and eats your crops or chases your domestic horses around and it's a problem. And then in the age of really sort of from the Enlightenment onwards, they become interesting as scientific specimens because people are starting to think about evolution and earlier versions and taxonomy and making these lists. And then they become with, I think actually almost with Byron, the idea of the wild horse as this sort of romantic sort of noble savage of the horse world um, starts to blossom. And then people get really interested in wild horses and and they're kind of everywhere. And that's obviously helped in the preservation of, in the protection of animals like mustangs, as well as with these um, the genuine wild horses, the it's fascinating how that, the, the way that that inverse ratio worked is that as they wild horses were disappearing, our interest in them was growing. And you described yeah, how yeah. these fascinating preservation efforts uh, by this one uh, uh, you know, Russian, uh, the, the efforts by the, 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 the German brothers during the war. And it, it kind of gets to that you know, theme of your book, which is how they even horses in the wild have this very inter, you know, connected relationship with humans that defines their existence. And with, and it, you know, we, and it's not just in terms of what we've done to, you know, effectively, you know, eliminate the wild horse population, but also the fact that, you know, we then also undertake very, uh, as you described, strenuous efforts to try to preserve it. Yeah, and to, to return them to um, the place in the world where they were last wild, um, which actually some horses just went out today. I just saw some footage of Shavalsky horses going from Europe and being released um, in the Gobi, which is the last place they ended up. Um, but yeah, I mean, my my sort of nut, as it were, my nut graph for the book was that humans have put huge amounts of energy into sort of invent, inventing and reinventing the horse in all these different ways. And horses have kind of just gone on trying to be horses <laughs> despite <laughs> that. <laughs> um, I don't know what they make of us. It's kind of a mystery to me. I did try and sort of get to that later in the book. Um, but it's extraordinary, the inventiveness of, of humans, not just with horses' bodies. Um, you know, we've turned them into everything from miniature horses to Belgian drafts, you know, like absolutely enormous animals to just the sheer number of symbols you know, we've made out of them and then the practical uses as well. So it's, I mean, I I love history and I, I trained as an anthropologist and I'm kind of, anthropology is kind of a greedy subject. You get interested in economics and culture and symbolism and politics and structure and history as well and geography and the horses 
it's a really good way to, to look at a huge number of things and sort of stick your fork in a lot of pies, as it were, if that makes sense. <laughs> well, um, and it, it did feel like doing sort of six PhDs on top of each other, this one, I have to say. <laughs> and yet the scope of it, I think, really is the best way of conveying just how wide-ranging that relationship has been. You, you talk in yeah. uh, later in the book about culture and, the, as you were just referring to, the, how we've represented horses, how they've become symbols of, of, of spirit or, or, or of power. But then there's the, the, the practical application of them, that, that uh, we, they, they, they literally become a measure of power. Uh, although, as you point out, it, it, it's one that we, we you know, miscalculated, although I found it interesting. We miscalculated horsepower, yes. But it's, it's almost like we, 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 we uh, the, the way we miscalculated, you know, erred on the side of the horse. It was like we, we gave the horse yes. greater credit for power than, than unfortunately was the case. Yeah, and people were genuinely puzzled when they realized that we were, you know, phasing out horses when we'd finally got um, all these different pieces of technology assembled to take over from the horse, people were really quite confused. And um, they put things, you know, they talked about car stables and sort of worried about, you know, well, we've got these new electric trams, but aren't they going to scare the horses? And, you know, um, wouldn't it be better to have an accident with a horse and cart than to have an accident with a car? And, you know, they really, can't, it takes people, you know, some people are enthusiastic futurists saying, well, great, let's get rid of horses. Um, but a lot of them are really kind of quite bereft and sort of not really sure what to do. Um, it's quite—it's not surprising when you realize, you know, how much we were dependent on the horse. Um, but it, it's quite funny almost to read um, people just a few years before, you know, it all really capers off are still thinking in terms of horses and where to keep them and what to feed them and so on. Oh, and manure, they were worrying a lot about they're gonna, there was going to be manure up to the third story in New York by a certain period as well. They were quite worried that that was going to happen. That was uh, one of my favorite parts of your book, which was your description of that interrelationship between horses and industrial technology in London in the 19th and 20th centuries. It, because it's not a... It's not, a question uh, or a story of sudden changeover that they invented the steam engine and all the horses were then, uh, you know, no longer uh, were now made redundant. It was more the fact that as technology became applied, they still found need for the horses in other ways. And it, in part, I, I think it's to just how you just how useful humans had made horses. Uh, throughout uh, their own the society of the most urbanized uh, industrialized city in the world at that time and how mm. and also but you also get into how complex the relationship was that, that oftentimes they held onto these horses not because they loved them necessarily and you, and you describe just how cruel people could be towards the, the, the horses they depend mm. upon but also but just the, the recognition that they still served so many roles even into the middle of the 20th century for which the technology that we were developing simply uh, uh, wasn't sufficient to replace. Yeah, and it's also there'll be factors like I think in the 1930s um, it became, you know, there were companies that had given up 
using horses for sort of short haul transport and then went back to them. You know, they put the motor cars and the trucks away um, because it was cheaper. And because at that time there was still a skilled labor force that knew how to work with horses. Um, but it took a long time and still a lot of people, I mean, I spent time with um, farmers working in the U.S. now who are sort of organic and smaller scale farmers, but who basically say horses are a lot more efficient under a certain, I can't remember, it's about something like 72 or 70 hectares of farming. Like under that, it's more efficient to have horses. And if you start to calculate in terms of um, sustainability and um, renewable energy sources, then and actually even making money <laughs> um, from the horse itself, then, then horses win over tractors. Um, one farmer pointed out that, you know, he swapped, told me he swapped his tractors for a horse team. And sort of over 10 years or something, of course, the horses had foals, which he sold. And so that was tens of thousands of dollars of profit. Whereas if he'd bought a, a tractor, all it would have done is, you know, depreciate. And then he would have had to sell it if possible and then buy another expensive tractor. So it was immediately a loss. Um, but there are some interesting studies being done sort of of comparison on the smaller scale farming and just, you know, horses, they grow their own fuel. Um, you don't have to transport the fuel long distances and then they, um, their emissions help grow more fuel. (laughs) (laughs) They make quite a good, um, ecological circuit. Um, although they do require more manpower than tractors, it's true. But, um, yeah, so that was, Interesting to see people are seeing horses as kind of eco tools now, which is like an extension of um, the way they were seen um, in the 19th century, I think. In a sense, as agriculture uh, began to embrace economies of scale, that was the only thing that made horses no longer as uh, useful in farming. But as what you're saying then is that as people have reconsidered that, the horse has once again become valued as an asset by farmers yeah and that, i mean that's been i mean that's been possible in america because of the amish because the amish have improved the the horse related technology and they've kept the horses going um in the uk all of our heavy horse breeds the really big draft breeds are all um endangered now there's one of them is actually rarer than pandas um but you also need to remember that in the developing world as a whole, there's still, I mean, 95% of donkeys and 60% of horses are working animals in the developing world. Um, and some estimates say, you know, each of those can support a family of up to 20 people or, you know, contribute to that family. So we're not entirely, we're not really past the age of the horse. Um, it's kind of still ongoing. And But I thought it was interesting that people in the West are to some extent going back to horses also for stuff like logging and like laying internet cables in remote areas. They're still much better at doing that than um, the nearest available uh, tractor. So, yeah. And horses in a sense will never go away because as you described in another chapter, there are still many societies uh, which value the consumption of horse meat. In, in, in some places in the West, 
uh, horsemeat has a certain stigma. It's it, it's it's regarded as as uh, you know not desirable meat or 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 offensive to consume horses. But in a lot of places, not just in 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 you know you know what we might dismiss as the third world, but in many Western countries, there is a great value still to horses as uh, you know in as uh, li livestock, for lack of a better word. Um, it's yeah, that's. I mean, it depends which countries you mean, because in places like France, I think the consumption's kind of falling. Um, uh, it's what I wanted to sort of talk about in the book a little bit is like the history of horse meat in the West, because we basically the taboo comes in kind of in the Middle East, really in sort of pre-biblical times, um, probably because horses are expensive. And then that's reinforced by the Catholic Church, uh, who saw it to some extent as a, a pagan practice, because you know all these pagans they were trying to conquer probably descended from these people of the steppes, and they were interested in sacrificing horses and getting up to all kinds of mischief. And then it was not really until um, the 19th century, till the Napoleonic Wars, uh, that Europe starts to eat horses openly. Um, and begins to legalize it. So, and there was a lot of opposition in some countries to that, not in others. So, in historical terms, it doesn't seem hugely surprising that in some places the consumption is falling away. Um, but it's it's a really it's a strange business, horse <laughs> meat, to put it mildly, <coughs> to a large part because. Um, Horses aren't necessarily raised for meat, which makes it complicated for food hygiene. And it gets into a complicated argument. This is one of the reasons people started eating them in the 19th century was it was thought it would be better for horses um, because otherwise they were sort of basically worked to death. And they thought, well, they'll be looked after if they're going for meat. But it, then you're kind of telling your customers that they get to eat um, old um uh, injured horse or old diseased horse, which is not hugely appealing. And <laughs> I think there's still some degree of legacy of that um, in a lot of countries. Um, but it's, yeah, it is an odd business. I mean, there are stories now of horses being shipped from Canada live to Japan um, for, for meat in Japan. Um, and there's always also this pattern of countries like you know Britain and America and Australia that don't eat horses but are really pretty happy to ship their horses to other people to eat <coughs> which isn't great for the horses either um, but yeah I mean it's it's such a complicated issue it raises really high passions um, but it's also you know we had this scandal in 2013 in Europe when it basically turned out that um, in a repeat of a scandal that really comes up all the time, you start to realize when you look at horse history, uh, some unscrupulous dealers had been putting horse meat into cheap beef products. Um, and it wasn't that horse meat had a huge value in Europe. It was that it was very cheap and it looked like beef. Um, so it was going into all these sort of TV dinners and cheap burgers. And it was it turned out to be happening right away across the continent. Um, and I, just remember one of the spokespeople for a supermarket and their frozen lasagnas had been found to have horse meat in it. And um, 
he he reassured the public by saying, uh, "Well, don't worry. Actually, our lasagna was only two percent meat anyway." So, <laughs> <laughs> so it was really, yeah. It wasn't that there's like huge value for horse meat. It's it's that it's it can be cheap and it does look a lot like beef. Um, but in other places, people have told me it is a delicacy. Um, but it's a really muddled and inconsistent industry, and it gets kind of dragged along in the wake of beef, to be honest, um, which I think is one reason it will never take off in America because beef is very cheap. And historically, Americans only eat horse when they can't get beef. So, um, But of course, even in, Ameri- in places like America where humans don't consume beef, we still have often taken horses and used them to provide meat for uh, other animals, such as dogs. And you describe how, yeah. how that developed and how that, in some places, is still going on as well. Uh, kennel ration in the 1920s, yeah, in Rockford, Illinois, uh, was this huge, I don't know if it, I mean, I think it was the first canned pet food place. <clears throat> and Philip Chappell, who set it up, was really, I mean, this is the time when horses are beginning to get obsolete. Um, and so he had a ready supply, and he also had access to not only Mustangs, but what seemed to be referred to as range horses, which were people were raising horses kind of almost wild um, in the West to supply markets um, for horses to work in the city or on farms. And of course, they just get in the way of beef after a while, which is exactly the issue that's going on now with the Mustangs. Um, So people suggest putting them in cans. Um, which is what happened in the 1890s and yeah, with this pet food issue, which attracted um, what I'm wondering if it's like the first piece of um, animal rights uh, direct action or uh, which was an arson attack by, a, well, repeated attempts at arson attacks by a cowboy called Frank Litz, um, who was just appalled by the fact that horses were going through this system. Um didn't really he didn't manage to destroy it um but was arrested and, and locked up and then as soon as he got out he immediately tried to blow the plant up again which failed <laughs> it's, it's like i say it i mean i when i got interested in the horse meat issue i knew it was a thorny and a difficult one in america but i had no idea quite how odd the history was it's all caught up in presidential elections it's caught up in a terrorist campaign in the 1990s. It's really, yeah, I tried to sort of put it in the history of America and meat in general. Um, and I still ended up taking about 10,000 words out of that chapter. <laughs> because there was just so much material. Oh, and the mafia too, they're involved as well. Um, it just sort of goes on and on and on. Um, well, as you explained in, in your in your own personal travels in researching the book, how you how you uh, recount uh, going to an auction where horses are being auctioned off, and it's a visible part of this rather shadowy pipeline where horses are auctioned off and then oftentimes just go somewhere. Yeah. I mean, there's, the, the thing with it is... Um, is that there's no independent oversight um, for these auctions. Uh, it's, so it's, you know, I think generally other, ind- other meat industries are very highly regulated. 
And because the end product in this case isn't staying in America, there's almost no oversight, um, which when, you know, the current administration is <coughs> talking about starting up soldier again, I'm kind of thinking, but there's no way they're going to spend the money they'd need to do to, to do that properly. Um, but it was, I mean, the main problem for those horses, which um, Temple Grandin pointed out, she did a study back in 1999, that the main problem is the owners of those horses um, who, you know, instead of uh, looking after the horses or euthanizing the horses, take them to this auction to get, um, <coughs> take them to the auction to get, you know, $50, $100. Um, and then the horses end up shipped to Canada or Mexico, which is a long way to travel. Um, before being sorted, um, which is not great. Although that industry might be kind of partly eliminated because the um, European Union is putting restrictions on what the Canadian plants can do. Um, so that might actually just eliminate the whole business. Um, and then people will have to deal with these horses and... Um, look after them properly, but I don't know. Humans don't really have a good track record of doing that. So it's, yeah, it's a perennial problem. Really. One of the uh, interesting dichotomies that I thought you, you uh, had uh, in your book, which was that how you go from talking about horses as meat and this, uh, you know, dis disposal of them by, by their owners uh, for, uh, you know, uh, for, for whatever they could get at auction. And then you then go on to describe the exact opposite, which is the degree to which humans, uh, you know, put so much value in horses. And, 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 and the other end of it, which are these uh, breeders and these show horses and, and the amount of money that is spent in places like uh, China, uh, where, you know, they're, they're a, you know, a, a very valuable commodity and one at which people will lavish enormous sums to uh, keep in better conditions than many humans. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I I knew that, I mean, the topic of horses as status symbols is, is not new. Um, and when I was thinking about the book, um, you know, you kind of thought, well, I could go to Palm Beach or, uh, Kentucky or, you know, some traditional uh, expensive horse area, you could put it that way. Um, and I wasn't very interested in that. And then I just started to find all these stories about China, which is really fascinating to me because um, China, obviously because of communism, there has been no kind of... Uh, luxury horse industry and so this whole cosmopolitan global luxury brand conglomerate of polo and horse racing and show jumping and dressage and whatever didn't exist but now that the economy is opening up and there are a lot of wealthy people there um, a lot of entrepreneurs from the west are flooding in and saying to the Chinese look you're very rich um, but if you want to do being rich properly you need to be able to ride a very expensive Dutch warm blood or you need to have a polo team or you need to own a racehorse, um, 
which is complicated because gambling is still not legal on the mainland. So uh, you either have your horse in Hong Kong or it's running in Europe. And because there's also no infrastructure for these horses, um, you get these kind of extraordinary planned developments that are a bit like, I mean, they have something of the, the sort of Maoist or communist thing of, you know, let's, Let's build a, the biggest hydroelectric dam in the world in five years. Uh, they're kind of the horse equivalent of that. Um, they'll be sort of, you know, we're going to build a race course that's also got a farm to grow the food because they don't have food. That's going to have a college to train the vets. That's going to have dormitories for the grooms. That's going to have housing for the wealthy owners. Um, that's going to have a riding school. That's going to have a stud to make the horses. Um, and, and we're going to build all that in five years. Uh, with gold-plated uh, dishes and um, etiquette classes. And um, it was interesting for me to go and observe a little bit of that um, firsthand. I managed to get to China for all of nine days, uh, how long I was allowed in, uh, and also to try and look back at the history of the horse in, in China, which, of course, is it's very long, um, but also a, a great illustration of this catch-22 of horses and money that, um, you know, when you want to look wealthy or powerful, especially for, for battle, you need a lot of horses. Uh, but keeping a lot of horses standing around costs you a lot of money, and it means you need a lot of land, um, which traditionally, again, goes with wealth. And the kind of the ways the Chinese have tried to balance that and achieve that with some massive historical financial disasters was, was pretty interesting to me um but there's also i sort of sort of realized when i started working actually on writing the chapter i'd kind of set myself this task of trying to sum up the whole of Chinese history began <laughs> 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 to regret that not that far into the project um because it's just extraordinary you know it's you you think you think you must be about up to the Tudor period or something, and, and you're about at a, around, you know, 100 AD, and <laughs> just sort of plodding, plodding through the, the emperors. Um, but I, I loved it, and I found it really fascinating. And I really liked it because it, uh, going back to your earlier chapter about uh, the representation of horses in uh, the West with their association with nobility and monarchy, it gets, it, it highlights the degree to which the uh, the embracing of horses as status symbols by elites really is not a product of any one society or, or, or country, but really does seem to be a universal uh, practice among humans wherever there are horses. That there always is this mm. desire to have. Uh, you know, breeds that, that that are handsome to show them off, and, and it becomes a very prominent symbol of their of their power and and, and their wealth and 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 their and their taste. Yeah, and there was um, towards the end of writing the book, um, an archaeologist in Oxford called Peter Mitchell brought out a book called Horse Nations, which is <coughs> Horse Nations is about um, the impact of horses on societies after 1492 so it's a kind of a deep dive into what happened when the horse arrived in different native american societies 
in South America, in Australia, in Southern Africa. Which, which and, should, be, we should be clear is, is the book that people who should buy after they buy your book. <laughs> we can do, but it's it's a it's a more detailed account. But I mean, one of the things that shows up is that you know, inequality quite often follows horses. Um, was was what I was sort of working around to say. And I think if I'd known more about that book, I would have incorporated a bit more of that um, into my book. But um, it's it's quite telling, and you know that goes right back to I think I think is it Aristotle or Plato writes something about you know, that you require an aristocracy to have cavalry um, and that you can't, it's incompatible with democracy, I think, um, which many would probably concur with. Um, yeah. And, and the, how, that really has continued to the present day, even in places where you, you don't have the traditional titled aristocracies, nonetheless, that association of horses and wealth remains. Yeah, there's, I mean, what I also tried to do in, in both books is point out that there's, there was and there is still like massive, um, like working class and sort of peasant and farming, uh, relationship too. It's just harder to get the written materials. You know, I can find scores of, um, beautiful sort of royal or aristocratic accounts of training your horse, um, from the 1300s onwards, it's harder to find um, histories and accounts and knowledge of the people who actually groomed these horses um, or who worked with them. Um, but it's still there. I tried to bring as much of it as I could into the book. Um, and there's still, I mean, horse ownership is, it's more diverse than you think. There are clubs uh, in inner cities, there are people who keep horses on in the equivalent of housing projects. Um, there are, you know, the sort of uh, ideas, people who are sort of outside of traditional society, like travelers and, and Roma keep horses. Um, and there's, I always, always, always fascinated in inner city riding clubs and groups that still persist. Sometimes they're even in basically what were the old working horse stables. Um, although fewer of those have survived in London now. But I think it's, you know, one of the things that makes the horse interesting is that it's when, you know, you try and come up with grand historical theories about horses, it usually comes astray because on the one hand, they do have this association, very strong one, with power and aristocracy and inequality. But on the other hand, they're also those sort of basic labor units um, still in parts of the world. And, you know, like I said, it's sort of scrap uh, animals that are broken up to parts or meat. Um, you know, the number of things we manage to turn horses' bodies into is kind of quite gross and extraordinary in itself. So it's they just cover such a range that um, it's it's hard to sort of bring it down to to, to one line, <laughs> Well, I thought you did a really good job of encapsulating so much of that relationship with horses in your final chapter about their role as a uh, tool of war. Because with that chapter, you were not just describing how they were employed, but you also get into how horses respond to being in this environment 
which is perhaps the most alien environment that horses are exposed to and how humans not only adapted them, but how horses uh, were, were, were shaped by it. You, uh, I was struck particularly by the anecdote you described of the, uh, of the uh, British Army veteran after the Battle of Waterloo who uh, purchased horses uh, uh, who had also were veterans of the battle and who described how, you know, even in the English countryside years afterward, they would still daily, almost like clockwork, go through this particular routine that was connected to the training that they had received as uh, instruments of war. Yeah, and I think that anecdote is really <laughs> fascinating because basically um, it was a piece of training done by humans for war that happened to be something that horses like doing, um, which, you know, outside of the battlefield and without bullets whizzing around, um, horses like to do things together in, you know, a degree of synchrony and they like to run together. So what they'd been trained to do was line up and charge. And that is what they carried on doing, you know, long after the war, even when they're at liberty. And it obviously gave them a degree of pleasure to do it. I don't think they were just doing it, you know, in a kind of Pavlovian sort of <laughs> reaction. You know, there was there was no bugle setting them off. They just knew they liked to do that, and so they did it. And that's one of the reasons, I think, although, you know, this is a question I ended up asking myself, is we talk constantly about horses as, today as, you know, flight animals and prey and scared of everything. And then you think, well, hang on, why did we spend thousands of years and we still are actually uh, taking them directly into battle? You know, people tried to do that with elephants. That didn't work hugely well. They tried to do that with pigs. Uh, the Chinese may have tried to do it with sheep. We're not sure. These things didn't work. Uh, horses did. Um, and I think it was that was what I was trying to get into in that chapter is is how on earth, as it were, horses' motives came together with human motives um, and somehow produced this outcome. Um, although also not always, because quite often the horses just were running on fear and adrenaline, quite obviously. And when you look at the um, spurs <laughs> that were being used on them and the the bridles the bits uh it's you know it's quite obvious that uh the riders were aiming on having control and fear to some extent on their side so and yet how is that different from how so many people react in war because i i was thinking as i was reading yeah. about that that a lot of that can be applied to you know humans that that humans you read all these accounts of how they experience a lot of the same things and it, it strikes me as the degree mm. to which there really isn't as much of a separation is there between how horses respond to war and how they have to be trained for it. you describe how the, the the process by which they would be acclimated to uh uh, uh uh, gunfire and then also acclimated to uh, shell fire to the point where eventually they, they adapted much as humans often did, but it often took that same, uh, you know, overcoming the, the fear and, and, and coping with the adrenaline of being in an environment that really is not entirely natural for, for either species. Mm. Yeah. And 
there's lots of historical accounts of horses seeming to enjoy war, which is also true of, you know, some humans. You know, I guess it's like a sheer adrenaline and the focus of the moment um, that does that. And of course, yeah, if you look at a lot of most human military training is about getting humans to do things together, uh, to sort of to march in, in synchrony, um, to think about other people in the group, to look out for other people in the group, which is, of course, you know, which is, of course, exactly what horses are naturally doing. You know, that's the survival mode. So I know I don't know. I guess I guess we're all mammals. <laughs> you know, we 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 like to we like to be in groups. Um, we habituate pretty well to things, and uh, we get scared. <laughs> um, yeah. Well, we've taken up a lot of your time, but before we go, could you tell us what you're working on now? At the moment, I I've kind of been doing. I find it very hard to research less. Um, I've been trying to do shorter articles that sort of tie in with some of the extra material I have, uh, but they then keep spiraling out of control. Um, so I did, I've got an, an essay I've done on the Palio, which is a medieval horse race that's still run in Siena in Italy, which is just the most, um, fantastically complicated and extraordinary civic exercise. It's, it's about corruption. It's about open bribery. It's about, um, the cosmos to some extent, uh, it's sort of man against fate. And, uh, it all comes down to these horses running around a, a square, um, a tiny square in the middle of Siena three times, uh, twice a year. And I'm also trying to track down uh, the real identity of a woman, uh, her photo went viral in something like 2012 and I put it on my blog and um, someone's actually making a short film inspired by the photo of her and I've decided to try and work out who she is and I've been working on that on and off. Um, she was photographed in 1891 uh, in Paris. Uh, she is dressed and the photo is labeled that she's um, what was known as an écuyère, which is a, a woman dressage rider who performed very high-level dressage in, in the circuit. So it's a very high-status job. And there were a lot of these women, they were famous. And the unusual thing about this woman in particular is that she's black. And I, if you think at that time in history, Black people were on display in France in kind of human zoos. And then there's this extraordinary image of this beautiful, absolutely defiant woman in a immaculate writing habit. And I'm just trying to find out who on earth she is. And her name is Zelika Lazewski, except that maybe it's not. And I'm chasing through all kinds of archives and finding missing files and just desperately trying to work out who she is. So... I have a feeling the essay is going to be about trying to find her rather than actually finding her because she seems to have um, disappeared um, without a trace. There's just these photographs from this very famous studio and, and that's it. It sounds, so. like, it sounds like a very <laughs> engrossing project. It is, it is. Um, and I've just received a new book in the post that I've got to come through and uh, see if I can desperately find any extra clues. <laughs> Well, Suzanne Forrest, thank you for taking some time out of your schedule today to speak with us. I hope you have a wonderful day. Thank you so much. It's been great.